It was 1513. A monk named Martin Luther served at a German outpost town called Wittenberg. And Luther was a brilliant but tortured scholar and a tortured soul who went through his monastic training severely burdened by a sense in his heart of his own sinfulness and a sense that he had that all was not right between he and God. In fact, he, uh, he used a German word to uh, describe what his soul felt, and it was the German word anfechtung, which means, and I'm no German scholar, but as I understand it, it means holy terror. Holy terror. He described this spiritual dread that he had in his heart this way, so great and so much like hell that no tongue could adequately express them, no pen could describe them. And one who had not himself experienced them could not believe them. In this moment, the soul cannot believe that it has ever, that it can ever be redeemed. And so Luther uh, went through this whole monastic training, and he was famously fastidious. Did I say that word right? (laughs) Fastidious, fastidious. Some English teacher will correct me after the service, no doubt. Uh, very careful with his attempts to obey all of the little details of the law. In fact, uh, there's a story where he used to go to uh, confession there in the Roman Catholic tradition. He would go to confession and he would be there for hours in the confessional booth confessing everything that he could think of that he might have done wrong. Uh, until one particular priest told him, he said, Luther, go home and come back when you have a real sin to confess. What did Luther feel in his heart? What, where did this unfectum come from? Luther sensed in his conscience that all was not well between he and God. Do you know that feeling? Even if you're a Christian here today, Maybe you can think back to a time where there was a sense in your heart like that. Something's not quite right. And my conscience tells me that. That's what Luther felt. He knew he was not accepted before God. And he asked the question in his heart, how can I, unrighteous and sinful as I am, stand before a God that I know is holy? And does not allow unrighteousness in his presence. And so he was tortured in that he felt in his heart that hell was his destiny. He was not confident that he was forgiven, that he was accepted by God. Well, the story famously goes that he was doing a lecture in, uh, in the Psalms, actually, but he, be, he began to meditate on Romans 1, verse 17, which says, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And slowly it began to dawn in Luther's heart that there was a way to eternally live that did not come from 
all of his confessions and all of his ascetic activities, there was a different kind of living that the text says comes by faith. And that thought became a mighty oak tree in his heart. And through his teaching and through his writings, literally the flames swept across Europe and changed the course of human history. And we are uh, here at Bethel Church, we're doing a three-part series on justification. This is week number two. And in week one, I began by asking the question, why should anybody care about this? I mean, this is one of these words, you throw it out and people, their eyes begin to roll in their head and they go, oh boy, here I am at church. And we're talking about a big hairy word. Why should all of us care about justification? And I began the same place that Paul begins in Romans 1 which is, verse 17, 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. God is not neutral. God is not benevolent. God, the text says, is angry against sin and sinners. And in that wrath and in that anger, it is but a breath away for all of us. Right before I came to this service, my wife mentioned to me that a friend of hers had a friend that was walking in downtown Valparaiso this week. I walked downtown Valparaiso this week. She was walking downtown Valparaiso this week. And a car hit her and she died. And we said this last week. Anybody here know when you're going to die? Do you know when you're going to die? And yet we live our life, don't we, just... Kind of like every day is another day. Everything's normal. We go to school. We go to work. Everything feels normal. Is there a sense in the world around us that on the other side of that moment that I can't control, there is a wrathful God who will judge, Romans 1, all the unrighteousness of men. And that doesn't mean he just judges our sins. He judges sinners. And we talked about how, like Pompeii, the people in Pompeii live in their life thinking everything's fine while Vesuvius is building in a churning lava kind of anger. And that broke out on them. And they all died. No idea that that day was their last. And there is for all mankind, there is a divine Vesuvius Who while we live our normal lives thinking that everything's fine because everybody seems to act, nobody's acting like they're particularly scared about anything right now. So why should I be afraid? And yet in a moment, suddenly, we can and we will stand before the divine Vesuvius in all of the the, the effulgent, resplendent power and majesty of his holiness. And in that moment, there will be only one thing that we are going to want. And that is that we are going to want righteousness. We are going to want righteousness. And justification is all about that one 
millisecond. On the other side that I die, that first moment when I step into eternity and all of a sudden the world that the Bible describes as God and heaven and Satan and demons and angels and hell, all of that suddenly now in our view and there he is in all of his glory. Justification asks the question, are you ready? Are you ready for the moment that is coming for every single one of us? Will we step into that moment, into that eternity, as sinners or as saints, as forgiven or under judgment? Will it be heaven or will it be hell? It all comes back to this doctrine of justification, which Luther said the church rises and falls upon. Now, with that said... Let's go back to this question, what is justification? And uh, in this weekend's message, we are really getting into the intricacies of how God declares sinners righteous. Like, how does he do that? Because man's biggest problem, but if I came to you and said, what's your biggest problem? And you say, oh, my wife or, you know, my kids or something like my job, I need money or something like that. No, you know what our biggest problem is? Our biggest problem is God. Man's biggest problem is God, and specifically, it is the holiness of God and the justice that God's holy character exerts towards anything that is not righteous as he is. So, in another way, you could say, well, then, therefore, my biggest problem is my sin. And yes, that is indeed the case. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 There is none righteous, no, not one. Chapter 3, verse 10. So, mankind as a whole has one massive problem, and it's God. And how I can stand before this holy God, righteous. Because to not stand before him accepted means to be rejected. And to be rejected means to be condemned. And to be condemned means to face eternal judgment. So the question that we have, the question that Luther was struggling with, the question that anybody that is honest in our heart and rightly assesses our situation is, how do I get my sins forgiven? And then, how do I get the righteousness that is necessary to stand before a righteous God? And justification answers both of these. And if there's a verse for this message that I really want us to focus on, it's Romans chapter 4, verse 5. So you can turn there if you have a Bible. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. There's so many we could pick from in the book of Romans, but this is the one I think that uh, works so well for this message. Here's what it says. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Let me read it again. And to the one who does not work, But believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Now look at that word justified there. You see it in the verse? That word justified, it's a legal word. It's a lawyer word. It's a judge word. You guys, you all know this moment. If you've ever been in a a courthouse or if you've ever watched one of these legal dramas that are on all the time, then you know the moment, right? When the... the, uh, 
the jury is brought out or the judge says the time has come for the reading of the verdict, right? Would the accused please stand? And he stands. And you can remember famous trials, O.J. Simpson and otherwise, where this moment, it's so poignant, isn't it? Where now we, the jury, or I, the judge, declare so-and-so guilty or innocent as accused. That declaration, that assessment of innocence or not, that is the word that we have here for justified. Okay? So put that into Romans 4, verse 5. To the man who does not work, that is not referring to being unemployed. That is the man who does not work, thinking his works, his religion, his righteous efforts are going to merit favor with God. It's spiritual activity. It's not vocation. So for him who does not work, but rather believes in him who declares... The guilty, righteous, who declares the ungodly, godly. Do you see the paradox here in that little phrase there? Who justifies the ungodly. What? In a court of law, God, you're saying that there, you, the holy judge will declare unrighteous people righteous. How do you do that without being, without this being a kangaroo court? Without, this be, without it being sin for God to do so? Do you see the paradox there? He is declaring something that is one thing to be another thing. Now to help you all get the sense of this, this would be like us declaring dirt clean, declaring liver and onions delicious, Declaring Krispy Kreme donuts good for you. Declaring Northwest Indiana winters balmy and delightful. Declaring a root canal the highlight of your week. Declaring the Cubs World Series champions. (laughs) Now I throw that in to get the sense of this. The righteous God justifies, declares righteous, the unrighteous? That's like duplicity, isn't it? This is hypocrisy. This is oxymoron. Is it, is it like opposite weak? What do you mean? Declaring the unrighteous righteous and still being righteous as God. How, how could he do this? And now we are into really the glory and the mystery and the wonder of justification. How God accomplishes this without getting his own hands dirty in the process and being a sinful God. And so we're going to peel away justification here a little bit. And as we do it, it's kind of like looking under the hood of an Italian sports car. You, you know it goes fast, but by looking under it, now you can kind of see how it goes fast, right? And with justification, we know that it saves, but by looking under the hood, we can see how God does it. And under this hood, to use the analogy, there's three supercharged cylinders, three doctrinal truths, 
three applications that allows a righteous God to declare unrighteous people righteous without himself being unrighteous. And those three are the cross, imputation, and faith. Okay? The cross, imputation, and faith. And we're just going to walk through those in that order. Now, by cross, when I say there, I'm, I'm really meaning, and, and the Bible uses this in terms of justification, uh, for Jesus Christ's death on a Roman cross in the first century. Okay? It's that cross that we're talking about. And we rightly see that, and we sing about it, and we celebrate that this was a great act of love that Jesus did. And it was the, an ulti- the ultimate sacrifice. You know, greater love is no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And we revel in the love of Christ displayed on the cross, and rightly so. But it was more than a display of love. It was a legal transaction that is underway as Jesus is on the cross. And this is not a transaction of money. It is not land. It's not even a sports car. It is spiritual value. It is righteousness. Think of righteousness as a spiritual commodity that can be transacted. God has it. Holy and righteous is God. Jesus had it in eternity past. The Holy Spirit had it, has it, will have it. When God created the world and created Adam and Eve, he gave it to them. When they sinned, they lost it. And this is the story of how we get it back. How do we get it back? When we have no standing before a holy God, all we have is condemnation. All we have is judgment. All we have is hell. How do we get this righteousness back when even our good works are like filthy rags, the Old Testament says, when even the good things that I do aren't good enough to merit favor with God? How does mankind get the one thing that it needs in order to stand before a righteous God? We see in the Old Testament that the law couldn't do it. The Israelites, they tried and they tried and they tried, and yet what do we find the testimony of the whole Old Testament to be? Failure. We cannot obey the law for a day even. The law can't give it. Our attempted good works, being nice people, upstanding citizens, doing nice things, doesn't give it to us. Religion doesn't give it to us, no matter how fastidious we are with it. So where do we get this righteousness we need? We come to find out that God can give it to us. But how does God give it to us? From a completely unexpected source. From the life and the death of Jesus of Nazareth is how God gives us righteousness. Now before you run right to the cross, we have to note that even from the beginning of Jesus' life, he is positioned to be qualified to give us righteousness. Remember that he was born of a virgin. Why was Jesus born of a virgin? Because the rest of us inherit the guilt of Adam. When Adam sinned, we all sinned with him. 
But Jesus was born by the power of God. He was born of a virgin. He did not inherit this kind of guilt. He did not even get a sin nature. And his whole life, he completely obeyed the law of God. Think of it. Every thought, every moment, every action, all that he did, never doing something he shouldn't have done, always doing the thing that he should have done, and doing all that he did with the right and proper God-loving motives. His whole life completely fulfilling every detailed requirement of the law. He lived a morally perfect life. Well, then we ask the question, well, then how could he die? Because the wages of sin is death, right? We die because we're sinners. Jesus never died. So how could he die? Here's how he could die. By giving his life voluntarily. Okay? By giving his life voluntarily. And we find in the unfolding glory of how God saves sinners that God allows substitutes. Somebody can pay the debt that we owe. Okay, this is like a businessman who's owed an enormous sum of money. Some guy owes him all this money. Now, the guy can pay him. The guy's parents can pay him. The insurance policy can pay him. It doesn't matter who pays him as long as it's paid. And in the eyes of God, we have the massive moral debt, don't we? And we can say, well, then I've got to pay it. Well, if i got to pay it, I'm going to hell. Because i got nothing to pay it. But God allows substitute payments. As long as the debt is paid, the debt is paid in the eyes of God. And because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law, he did not die for his own sin. He could not die for his sin. He never sinned. But he could die for somebody else's sin. And the Bible says that he died for our sins. All of our sins. He died in our place. And what if Jesus' worth as a payment was based on his worth as a person? Would there possibly be enough payment to cover the debt of everybody? If Bill Gates takes a kindergarten class out for ice cream... Are those kids walking through the line going, I hope he can cover it? No. Why? Because he's Bill Gates. He's the richest man in the world. He could buy this whole ice cream store and not even blink. He certainly can pay the debt that our ice cream has incurred. And the Savior of the world is the Son of God. And that payment that his death made was enough for all of this debt that our sins, yours and mine, have incurred against God. His payment is enough. And that is what the cross was about. It was a moral payment. It was a debt payment by the Son of God whose value was infinite and certainly enough to cover the debt of our sins. But the question still remains, I think, how does a death, and I, you hear this sometimes from people, they think, wait, your, your whole faith is based on some guy that died like 2,000 years ago. Why should, and how can some death by some guy on some cross in the Middle East, how can that do something for me today? Like, I don't get it. Well, here, let me help you get it. Because the Bible talks about imputation. Imputation. Back to Romans 4, it says his faith is counted as righteousness. 
To him who believes, his faith is counted as righteousness. Some translations go with reckoned there. The word, it's a, it's a legal financial word. It means to credit. Okay? If you do your online banking, or really you do any banking at all, in fact, you pay your bills and we hope you do, then you know what this word means. Because if you do online banking, you're paying your bills, right? So here's the stack of bills, something like this. And you are like, I got to have enough in my checking account to cover the payment of all of these bills. And so what most of us do is we, we go into the savings account and we transfer to the checking account enough money in order to pay off the bills that that month has incurred. Okay. We're on common ground. This is the world that we live in. When you do that, you are, you could say, well, I'm going to transfer the money. But from now on, every Bethelonian has to say you're, you're imputing it. Honey, we've got a big bill. You better impute some money into the, into the, into the checking account. Try that when you go to the bank next time. I'm here to impute some money into my checking account. They're going to like, are you robbing us? Say, no, I'm not robbing you. I I just want to put more money in my checking account. Why did you use the word impute? Because I go to Bethel Church and we're all theologians there. They're like, oh, we've had others like you. In imputation, God legally transferred the guilt of our unrighteousness to Jesus on the cross. And when we believe, God transfers Jesus' righteousness to our eternal moral account. Now you can look at that and say, but there's no reference next to it. He's making it up. I have verses like Romans 4, verse 22 and following. This is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him, speaking of Abraham, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that last verse in particular says it so brilliantly simple there's not a child here who can't understand it. What does it say? God made him who knew no sin speaking of Jesus made him sin. How does God make the Son of God sinful? It is by imputation. Whereby God takes the guilt, our guilt, and as Jesus hung on the cross, placed it upon Jesus' conscience. And from the perspective of God the Father, viewed Jesus as actually being unrighteous. You can look at it this way. As Jesus hung on the cross, he felt Vesuvius. He felt the wrath of God. That's why the sky grew black as he hung there. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why was there that despair in his heart? Because the father was viewing him as the rapist and as the adulterer and as the thief and as you, my friend, and me as well. And the righteous one feels unrighteous. He feels guilt. He feels the wrath of God. He feels what we deserve to feel forever. God imputes that guilt to him. Now you might say, well, hey, that's it, right? That's all he had to do. And we're in. We're good. Actually, it's only half the story. Because taking away the guilt of our sin actually doesn't save us. If I could walk down to you and just take away all the guilt of your sin, you still go to hell. You say, well, how can that be? Because it's it's like getting into Harvard. You don't get into Harvard by getting the F's taken off of your, of your report card. You get into Harvard by having a whole lot of A's, right? And for us morally, just having our guilt taken away does not give me righteousness. What I need in that millisecond after I die is I need righteousness, righteousness, perfect righteousness to stand before God. I still don't have it. I just don't have guilt. Well, how do I get righteousness then? And here we have the double blessing of imputation. Because not only does God, as 2 Corinthians says, does God make him sin, but in him we become the righteousness of God. Meaning that by the same imputation principle that takes my guilt and places it and gives it to Jesus, God takes the righteousness of Christ, that fulfilling of the law, the perfect life, takes that righteousness and when a sinner believes in Jesus, places that righteousness into the moral account of that sinner and promises, get this, promises that forever I will only see you as being completely righteous, the very active obedience of the Son. I see you that way, and I will forever treat you as a perfect moral human being. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the second imputation. When I put my hope and faith in Christ, from God's perspective, I'm as righteous as Jesus was and is. So the result of this is that Jesus, as he's on the cross, is in a category that he doesn't deserve. He is in the category of unrighteous. He is under the wrath of God. I am in a category that I don't deserve which is forgiven and righteous in the eyes of God. Does that seem fair to you? Because that doesn't seem fair to me. In fact, that that, that seems to me to be like the most unfair thing that has ever happened in the whole world. 
And indeed, it's not fair. So how does God do this and not be open to the accusation of being unjust? How does God cease to be God by apparently lying about who we are, actually, and treating an innocent person the way that he treated his son Jesus? I mean, how do we feel when we hear of children who are mistreated or, or senior citizens in a home that are mistreated? We sense violation from that, don't we? Why? Because it's not fair. It's not fair to their character. It's not fair to who they are. And yet Jesus took on the guilt of the sins of the world. Boy, God, I don't know. I don't know that you're righteous if that's the way that you do it. How does God do it? And the answer to this is that the cross is the statement of both God's majesty, the majesty of his holy justice, and the greatness of our debt before God. Look at what it cost in order to pay the debt. Can anybody look at the cross and go, you know, sin's not that big a deal. The Son of God died for sin. It's a massive statement about the greatness of our sin. But because it was Jesus, it also upholds the glory of the, of the, of the purity and the righteousness of of God. How's that? Jesus' voluntary substitutionary death allows God to fully uphold his justice while making a way for sinners to be declared righteous. The law is fulfilled in Christ's perfect life. God's justice is satisfied in Jesus' death. His glory is maintained as God declares the sinner's sinner righteous while simultaneously upholding the glory of his own holiness. That I call brilliant. That is the mind of God and how God did it. I was asked this week, because of last week's message, I was asked this week, so are Christians under condemnation then? Like, if God's this Vesuvius, wrathful God, are we, are we under condemnation? So what about that wrath thing? After God declares the sinner righteous, after the sinner believes in Jesus, Romans 8 verse 1 answers this so wonderfully. It says this, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now how can this be? Because God promises to always reckon us, always count us, always view us from the perspective of the righteousness that he has given to us. Always will do that. Now, if you're out there going, man, that's awesome. So I'm like righteous. No, you're not. You are not righteous. Ask the person who knows you. There isn't a single one of us that, right? We are still sinners here, right? Indwelling sin stays with us until the day that we die. We can't look at justification and just be like, man, we're awesome now. No, we're not. 
And that is the wonder of it. We are still sinners. And yet God promises never to count those against us. He promises to always see us as righteous. There is no condemnation today. There is no condemnation tomorrow. For those that are in Jesus, there is never condemnation. Hear that from me. I say it on the, on the, on the, on the authority of God's word. If you believe in Jesus, you will never be condemned. That means that millisecond after you die and you step in, there is Vesuvius. In that moment, there will not be condemnation, but acceptance, a receiving, a love, a welcome, hospitality, indeed heaven, by the hand of God. Never, ever, 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 ever again. Will you be condemned? There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, the hymn says, right? Now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine. Started that too low. Uh, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. For I am his and he is mine. Here in the power of Christ I stand. We sing that, we love it. And so what do we do then? We marvel. We marvel at this. We wonder at this. We worship at this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a sinner like me. And one millisecond after you're dead, I promise you, the greatest reality in your heart will be that you are not condemned by God. third aspect is faith. Faith. Cross, imputation, and faith. Again, the verse, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. There it is. Believes in him. His faith is counted as righteousness. Why would God make the means by which this righteousness comes to me, be belief. My personal trust, my personal resting in Jesus. And I think the answer to that is because faith is the opposite of what we naturally want to do. We naturally want God to tell us to climb some mountain on our knees. We want God to say, quote these things 15 times every single day. We want God to give us something that we do so that there would be something in it that we could look back and go, ah, look what I did. Yeah, I'm in heaven, and yes, Jesus died, but look what I did. We want credit somehow in this. And you think about all the religions of the world. All of them except Christianity have man doing something. 
a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And yet Christianity says, no, this is by the grace of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace you have been saved and through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this whole thing can seem unfair if we believe that everyone deserves to go to heaven. The testimony of the Bible is the opposite of that. Everybody deserves to go to hell. God is not obligated in any way to lift one finger to save any of us. And if he never did anything, nobody could say, God, you weren't just in this. Why? Because we are getting what we deserve. That's fair. That's justice. But God chooses in love to save us completely by his grace through faith. And through Jesus, he makes saving righteousness available to all who believe. And by doing it the way that he did, he ensures that everyone who goes to hell, it's their fault. And everyone who goes to heaven, it's God's fault. So that no one can boast. And so it seems to me that where the personal rubber meets the personal road on this is whether you're going to be walking in downtown Valpo this week, my dear friend. Your heart might be saying, put it off, don't think about it, you'll get around to it. I'm a young person, i got many years. I've heard it all before. I'm not going to think seriously about whether or not this is a reality in my heart. Don't go to Valpo this week. And you better hope that nothing happens to you. But here's the thing, eventually something happens to all of us. That moment is coming. Will you stand before Almighty God as a sinner or as a forgiven saint? And it comes down to the question, if in your heart, are you trusting in your own good works? Are you trusting the fact that you're better than most people? Or will you acknowledge that you are in fact the worst sinner you know? And from that perspective, put your faith in the one who died for you and receive in that moment the very righteousness of God. What will death reveal about the true condition of your heart, my friend? It's justification. It's righteousness. It's free to all who believe. Won't you believe? Won't you take that step of faith and trust in the one who indeed does love you and died for you? And may not God in eternity reckon you righteous. More on this next week. Would you stand and pray with me? God, I pray right now, Lord, I pray over this room. I pray, God, to you, the God who reckons the unrighteous righteous. God, I pray that you might right now pour out your grace into this place. God, I pray for 
every person here that they may know, that they may know that their sins are forgiven, that they may know that they have righteous standing before you. And it's not because of my message, but because of the gospel, God, that you would do this. I think of the boys and girls that are here in this room. I pray for them. What a blessing for me to believe in Jesus when I was six years old and to live a life now assured of my eternity. God, I pray that you would work in their lives. Lord, drive this truth deep into the heart of our church. May it it truly deepen our gratitude and deepen our wonder at what you have done to save us. So we thank you, God, that you are a God who declares the guilty righteous. And Jesus, thank you for making a way for that to happen. To you be all praise. Amen.